Today on Audibly Speaking, Rethinking the Zapruder Film. Hi, I'm Rick Ryman, host of Audibly Speaking, a show on the stories behind the stories of our time. By sounding out on these stories, we give voice to them and hear them for the first time. From the news of the day to history and literature, from audiobooks to leaders on the stump, we examine the backstories of our time, audibly speaking. In this episode, I want to do something unorthodox. I want to try to convey the essentials about a movie, the 26 seconds of 8mm film shot by Dallas dressmaker Abraham Zapruder of the JFK assassination in an audio-only podcast in which not a frame of the film can be shown. It seems to me that while the Zapruder film contains important evidence, it misleads and distorts at least as often as it enlightens. Maybe it is best to talk about it and learn about it before watching it. To watch the Zapruder film is to be mesmerized. Even in the briefest of film footage, many things are going on in the Zapruder film, but only a fraction of these things that are seeable are at the same time noticeable. We focus like a laser on JFK or John Connolly and see how their positions change frame by frame. And in the process, we lose sight of other things going on in the images, important things. It is like the famous gorilla video, where persons are asked to watch five or six individuals passing a basketball off to each other and to count the number of times the basketball changes hands in the course of this brief video. In the video, a gorilla walks into the scene, beats its chest, and then walks out of the scene. But when the students are asked to focus on something particular in the video, that is, the passing off of the basketball from one person to another, it turns out that it's impossible for them to see a gorilla walking across the scene very slowly. So, too, with the Zapruder film. Because we concentrate on the movements of just a few people, and even then to only a select few rather obvious stimuli, such as the reaction of the principals to gunshots, we miss entirely crucial gorilla-sized information, or tells, in the same film, no matter how many times we watch and rewatch it. I have links to the famous Gorilla video in the webpage for this episode, as well as links to other important sources for some of the observations made here. But before we begin to explore what may lay hidden in the Z film, let me provide a quick overview of what we have always known, or thought we have known, about the film. In just 26 seconds, consisting of 468 frames, Zapruder shot the most famous home movie in American history, and possibly the most famous film in American history without any qualifications. Rightly or wrongly, and I would argue wrongly, most Americans regard the film as the single most important piece of evidence in the JFK assassination. That we have it at all happened quite by chance. Abraham Zapruder headed a business making women's clothing in the Daltex building across the street and adjacent to the Texas School Book Depository. One of his employees, Marilyn Saltzman, 
knew that he loved taking home movies with his new Bell & Howell Zoomatic camera. Zapruder planned to watch the motorcade from the window in the Daltex building, especially since it was raining throughout the night and early morning of November 22nd. When he left for work, it was still raining, and he simply forgot to bring his camera with him. Zapruder had to be persuaded by Saltzman to drive home to retrieve the camera. He was persuaded in part because by mid-morning the day had turned sunny and beautiful. When he returned to the office with his camera, he and Saltzman decided to find a better vantage point from which to film the motorcade than the window of their office. Dealey Plaza, located on the other side of the Texas Book Depository from the Daltex building, offered a sweeping view of the sloping Elm Street between Houston Street and the triple underpass that marked the end of the motorcade. Built by the National Youth Administration and WPA of the New Deal in the 1930s, it consisted of tastefully separated columns, pylons, and pedestals in a green space that gave it the air of a pocket park. The two decided that Zapruder would stand on one of the four-foot pedestals so that his view of Elm would be unobstructed by the bystanders standing on the side of the road between him and the motorcade. Saltzman would steady him while he filmed. Zapruder was excited at 12.29 p.m. when the lead motorcyclist heading the presidential parade rounded Houston Street and proceeded down Elm. Expecting the president's car to appear almost immediately, he began filming, but as frame after frame passed through his camera, Zapruder knew he had a problem. He did not have a new reel of film in his camera, much of it had already been exposed on family parties and the like, and he was not sure how many seconds of film remained. He had no idea how far behind the three lead motorcyclists the presidential vehicle was. A lengthy wall on the Houston Street side of Dealey Plaza obscured his view of the approaching Lincoln on Houston. Zapruder, therefore, stopped filming and decided to wait to restart the camera when he was certain that the president was clearly in view. In the conflict between his desire to capture JFK as long as possible and his worry about running out of film, his scarcity concerns must have won out. By the time Zapruder had turned on the camera, both the presidential Lincoln and the Secret Service follow-up car had already turned onto Elm, both vehicles had already completely straightened out, and had furthermore proceeded five to ten additional feet down Elm Street. By the time Zapruder had begun refilming, seconds had passed after the two cars had already straightened, the memory of which several bystanders associated with the timing of the first shot, that is, the shot that missed. The great investigative journalist Max Holland has noted that the Zapruder film has been transformed in our imagination into something it never was, a supposedly exact facsimile of the assassination itself. We can't imagine the assassination apart from the film. So as Holland points out, we assume that Zapruder must have captured the entire assassination sequence. This claim that the Zapruder film captured the entire assassination is as common as it is false. Oswald, as Holland notes, was not waiting for Zapruder to restart his camera before shooting at Kennedy. 
Many ear witnesses, such as Secret Service agent Paul Landis, who was standing on the floorboard of the car immediately behind the president's vehicle, testified that he heard the first shot practically at the instant his car had fully straightened out from the turn onto Elm. So did Amos Ewens, another witness. As much as a second later, Zapruder turned his camera back on and captured frame 133. If Oswald's first shot had struck Kennedy, then our first glimpse of the Zapruder film would have been of a stricken, possibly deceased president. It wasn't just the testimony of Landis and Ewens that tell us that the shooting sequence had already begun by the time Zapruder switched his camera back on. So too does the behavior on the film of 10-year-old Rosemary Willis. Beginning with that first frame, 133, she is seen running parallel to the presidential limousine. She continues to run west along Elm as the president's car speeds past her position. But by frame 142, only a half second after the film has restarted, she is turning her head radically over her right shoulder, looking backward at the depository and the source of the first shot. She has also slowed down. In the description of Kenneth Searce, something more important than the president's car must have seized her attention in order to prompt her to look almost 180 degrees from JFK to the Texas School Book Depository. It would have taken Miss Willis more than half a second to begin reacting fully to the first shot, something she is clearly doing as early as frame 142, if not earlier. This realistically fixes the first shot at a second or more before the first Zapruder frame to capture the presidential vehicle, frame 133. What this means is that, contrary to the assumptions of just about everyone in the first four decades after the assassination, Zapruder had begun at that moment to film an assassination that was already in progress. This has escaped our realization because most people restricted their focus to evidence of bullets striking people, obscuring our view from crucial evidence in the same film of the actual start time of the assassination. Why do such details matter? Because they turn our understanding of the amount of time Oswald had to get off three shots completely on its head, upending the assumption that he got off three shots in the lightning speed of six seconds, a conceit that became carved into people's consciousness by their first fragmentary look at the Zapruder film in Life magazine in November and December 1963. If one looks at the passenger reactions, the only obvious ones are in response to the second and third shots. And so even the FBI at first concluded that the second shot, striking Kennedy while he was blocked from Zapruder's view by a highway sign, was actually the first shot that a separate shot struck Conley about the same time, and the third shot was the obvious fatal shot to JFK at frame 313. They killed him! They killed him! Zapruder shouted after the car reached the triple underpass. If one interprets the Zapruder film to show separate bullets hitting JFK and Connolly milliseconds apart, as so many did early on, the only possible conclusions are two separate gunmen and a conspiracy on the one hand and a shooting timeline of no more than six seconds on the other. 
These tend to suggest that Oswald alone could not have accomplished the assassination. What unlocks the truths obtainable from the Zapruder film is, not surprisingly, the hard work of contextualizing it with other evidence, evidence that is absolutely necessary to explain what we see. Most people, mesmerized by the film, see it and only it, and don't bother with the other evidence or the aforementioned hard work of contextualization. It hasn't helped that so many writers themselves emulate this amateurish and even childish approach of interpreting one piece of evidence as the only trustworthy piece. The single best example of how facts can flow from the Zapruder film only through contextualization with other evidence is shown by the case of the single bullet theory, a triumph of the Warren Commission investigation. Looking just at the Z film, Kennedy and Connolly certainly appear to react to separate shots at separate times. But even if two shots were really one, there is no doubt that the two men react at different times. The Zapruder film can and does show this fact, but it cannot show the reason for it. The reason has to do with the path of the bullet through the two men's bodies something that cannot be seen from the Zapruder film. Kennedy's first wound was partly spinal, and his reaction immediate. Connolly's injuries missed his spine, and so his reaction was slower because it was triggered by pain. Same bullet, different reaction times. We are talking about a quarter of a second here. How do we know about these paths? Not from the Zapruder film. We know them because of a combination of three factors. Trajectories from the car's position to the sixth-floor window from which the shots were fired, doctors and autopsy reports, and photographs of the wounds of the two men, and the positions of the two men at the time of the shot or shots. Only the last of these three pieces of evidence are provided by the Zapruder film. All three forms of evidence line up perfectly, but only when we do the hard work of examining three different sources of evidence providing different vantage points of the same event. With only the Zapruder film as a guide, we are left with a single conclusion, based on an image interpreted with the naked eye, a single witness with all the usual disadvantages impacting any case from the inherent limitations of the single witness. And as many people have pointed out, this single bullet was certainly no magic bullet. A real magic bullet would have been one that passed through JFK's neck and just disappeared before striking the back of the governor immediately in its line of fire. And yes, the fact that no remnant of the bullet was found in the car Another piece of evidence outside the film further supported the single-bullet conclusion. Similarly, the Zapruder film can't tell us what made Rosemary Willis turn her head, but Miss Willis can, and she has made it clear that she was reacting to a shot which sounded like it was coming high from the direction of the book depository building. Mr. Zapruder's film tells us that the position of Connolly's half-turned body and Kennedy's throat wound 
lines up to explain their separate wounds from a single bullet. But what closes the case is not a picture, but the fact that measurements of the architecture of the car show how far from the side of the car Connolly's jump seat was, in contrast to Kennedy's seat further lining up the trajectories. Nobody would want a defendant to be found guilty based on a single item of evidence, especially one as small and blurry as the Sapruder film. But an amazing number of people seemed ready to cast the Zapruder film in gold as the Rosetta Stone with all the answers. There's that mesmerizing effect again, but mesmerism, or hypnotism, is not admissible in a court of law. Though the Zapruder film endlessly fascinates, and though it is invaluable in helping us put the puzzle pieces of the assassination together, theories that spring solely from the film insult the intelligence of those asked to consider them. Zapruder, seeing the same things that the film shows us now, shouted, they killed him. It takes other evidence to contextualize the film and yield the fact that it was likely the act of one man after all. Thanks for listening. That's it for today's episode of AudiblySpeaking.com. New podcast episodes appear on AudiblySpeaking.com approximately once every two weeks. Please subscribe to Audibly Speaking on iTunes or whatever podcast aggregator you enjoy. Until next time, this is Rick Ryman. Happy listening.